The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, my name is Anne Hook. I'm the Publications Manager at Lymphoma Action, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Viv Campbell, guitarist of the band Def Leppard. Hello, Viv. Hello, Anne. Lovely to chat. Some people might know you because of your musical career. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, gosh. Well, it's been a long career. I am now 61 years of age, and I've been doing this my entire adult life. In fact, even before my adult life, I uh, I sort of had a bit of an epiphany in the early 1970s, 1971 or 1972, watching Top of the Pops one Thursday night and seeing T-Rex, Mark Bolin, and that was a, a light bulb, life-changing moment for me as a young kid. I just thought, you know what, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to grow my hair and wear my sister's clothes. So <laughs> that's kind of, I did half of that. I grew my hair. I couldn't fit into my sister's clothes. That was the beginning <laughs> of the glam rock era, of course, you understand. So, you know, it was T-Rex and, and David Bowie and his Ziggy Stardust phase and all that. So it was an exciting time in music and, and music sort of excited me. And, and that's all I've ever really wanted to do. So I've been very, very fortunate that I've had a very long and, um, colorful and I think somewhat successful career in music. And uh, in my 50s now and in my early 60s, I've managed to do it without a lot of hair. So because of lymphoma, um, but it's not such a bad thing. You know, I'm at a time in my life when I think I'm more suited to have a grown up haircut anyway. So and you mentioned lymphoma. So can you tell us when you thought something was amiss in terms of your health? Yeah, I, I know exactly when it was. And as a result of that, I'm a really, really strong advocate in people listening to their own bodies because I, I knew something was seriously wrong with me for about a year and a half before my doctors actually got serious with a diagnosis. And I kept going back to my doctors and they kept saying, oh, you know, it'll pass, whatever it is, it's probably nothing serious. And I kept thinking, no, I think there's something going on here. So, you know, you tend to, certainly as a guitar player, you know, I didn't have a great education other than life, but, you know, you you have a lot of respect for people who go to medical school. Obviously, they they put a lot of time and effort into it and they're, they're experts in their field and you tend to sort of defer to their judgment. But, you know, you got to keep in mind that nobody's going to understand your own body better than you because you're the only one living in it. But what happened with me was we were on tour. I remember we were in Asia. We were down in New Zealand and Australia and Japan. And uh, I got sick on the road and it was really sort of low level, stuffy head and a sore throat and a bit of a cough. I saw a doctor came to a show, give me some antibiotics to take for a month or six weeks or something. And I thought, okay, and I, I would take that and I'd feel a little bit better, but it sort of lingered. It never really cleared up. You know, a month or two later, we were touring in the UK and I got exactly the same symptoms. I saw another rock and roll doctor came to a show and again, give me pretty much exactly the same thing. And, you know, just take this, it'll pass. And then I was home at the time I was living in Los Angeles, California, and I, I went back to see my regular doctor 
about a month or six weeks after that, again, getting the same symptoms and, and my doctor just telling me, well, sometimes these, these things just linger, you know, and, but I also had developed and maintained this very persistent cough and the cough would, would ebb and flow. Some days it wasn't so bad. Other days it was really, really bad. On occasion, it, it got so bad that I couldn't even have a conversation, you know, it just, I was constantly coughing. And so I went back to my regular doctor and he said, well, you know, go see this respiratory doctor down the street. So he referred me to the respiratory doctor. I went to see that guy and, you know, he asked me some questions, basically sent me home with an inhaler and a nasal spray <laughs> and told me to come back in a month or six weeks. I, again, you know, the cough was, was inconsistent. I mean, some days I would think, okay, this is definitely showing signs of getting better. And then other days it would just seem to get worse and mm. no real logic to it. So anyway, long story short, I kept going back to the respiratory doctor probably for six or seven or eight months. And this whole time, they never gave me an x-ray or anything. And I kept thinking there's something going on inside of me. And I said, yeah, you know, can you just give me an x-ray? And oh, you'll be fine here. Just take this a stronger inhaler, you know, come back in a month. And then eventually after months and months of this, I said, look, just x-ray me just, you know, just for my own peace of mind, you know, just so you can see what's going on. So I remember we did the x-ray and the, the doctor comes into the room and he's going, hmm, this doesn't look too good. <laughs> and he said, are you free this afternoon? He said, I'd like you to go get a scan. Mm -hmm. And I said, absolutely. Yeah, let's do whatever has to be done. So they sent me for uh, a CAT scan and um, he called me that evening when he got the results of that. And he said, I'd like to, you to go see an oncologist tomorrow. So obviously something was going on. And that was very, very frightening when you hear that for the first time and you hear the word oncologist and you think, oh, okay, this is not good. But in a way, you know, I'd been mentally prepared for about a year and a half because I knew something was going on, even though my doctors were very, very, very slow on the uptick. So I was sort of a little bit more mentally prepared because I knew it was something more than just a little cough. And it, so it turns out that the lymphoma was was essentially strangling my windpipe, you know, which is why I had these days where I just could barely have a conversation and this cough was just so strong. Anyway, so I saw the oncologist. I'm, I'm happy to say that from that point on, things did move pretty quickly and I was diagnosed as stage 2B uh, with Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that was relatively early. You know, within a week, they had me set up for, for doing a biopsy. And uh, within a few weeks of that, actually, we were starting the, the treatment. I did six months of a treatment called ABVD. But anyway, that was uh, the first course of treatment that I did. So fast forward, now it's been 10 and a half years since I started that treatment. I'm still dealing with the lymphoma. You know, it's sort of like it's an American expression, whack-a-mole. You know, you beat something back and then it pops up somewhere else. But, you know, it, it's been a pretty consistent battle, but it, it hasn't been too difficult for me. And, you know, I, I, I deal with it fine. I've been able to live my life. I've been able to continue touring. For the bulk of those 10 years, I actually was doing immunotherapy uh, starting in June of 2015. I started taking a drug called pembrolizumab. I did that as part of a clinical trial, and uh, we discussed a few options. And I'd heard about this immunotherapy, and it was, you know, a, a very nascent treatment. And I was really pushing for doing it. I, I remember at the time my doctors wanted me to do radiation and maybe a combination of radiation and chemo. 
And I just thought, well, let's just try this immunotherapy thing. Let's see if this works. So I, I managed to get on the trial. I'm happy to say that it worked well for me. So from June of 2015 until essentially the end of 2022, I was able to just about once a month go in and do an infusion of pembrolizumab and just go about my life. And it was very, very easy for me to do. Honestly, the hardest part was scheduling with all my travel. Uh, there were very, very subtle, very benign side effects for me. I tolerated the treatment very, very well. And that was that was working great, but it, it sort of lost its efficacy a year or a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And you could tell in the scans, I would do scans every three to four months just as a matter of protocol anyway, to see what was happening. And, and my oncologist now had been telling me for essentially the last two years that the pembrolizumab was not being as effective as it once was and that we were going to have to consider different treatments. So anyway, in uh, November of last year, we did a combination of pembrolizumab with three chemo drugs. I have to forgive me because I cannot remember the names of the chemo drugs. But anyway, so I did a course of treatment, six cycles of, of that combination therapy of the three chemo drugs and the pembrolizumab. Unfortunately, it didn't put me into remission. Uh, mm -hmm. We fell a little bit short of that. So I just recently at the end of July started doing six cycles of a combination therapy of a chemo drug called brentuximab and an immunotherapy drug called nivolumab. <clears throat> I'm halfway through that. I've done cycle three. Uh, I do cycle four early next week. So far, so good. I, I had to go and get this stunning haircut yesterday because the brentuximab does have hair loss as a side effect. So I could start telling in the last couple of weeks, every time I touched my hair, it was coming out. So, uh, mm -hmm. so I'm being a little bit more proactive by going and cutting it super, super short. And have you got used to this much shorter haircut? Because People see pictures of you and you had this amazing mane of hair. You, you lost it in the first session of uh, chemotherapy, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. 10 years ago, when I first started doing the ABVD chemo, that's when my hair first fell out. And so that was difficult. It was mostly difficult for me because I'd had long hair my entire adult life. Like I literally started growing my hair long when I was about 11 or 12 years old and it's just got longer and longer. And it becomes part of your identity when it's when it's around for so long, you know, especially as a guitar player. And, and to be honest, you know, it, it was a, a comforting thing to me because it gave me something to hide behind when I was on stage. I am naturally a very shy person and I identify with being a musician. I don't identify very much with being a performer. Even though, if I'm being honest with myself, that's really kind of what we do. And Def Leppard, yeah, we're, we're musicians and we're songwriters. We write songs and we make records and we record music. But when we go on tour, we're performers, you know, and that's part of it. And and my hair gave me something to hide behind. It was a big part of my identity for so much of my life. So it, it was difficult letting go of it the first time. Again, I was living in L.A. at the time, and I, I went to a theatrical wig maker when they first told me my hair was going to fall out. They took pictures and, and measurements of my hair before it fell out, and they made a very, very realistic wig for me. It was very expensive, and it was very realistic. And I could have transitioned to that and people might not have noticed other than the weight loss. I mean, I definitely was losing a lot of weight. So I was a bit more gaunt looking, but the wig thing just didn't feel right to me. 
Uh, and I know that it, it's different for everyone else. And I, I literally wore that wig, I think, for about 12 or 13 minutes, driving home after visiting the wig guy and getting fitted for this. And I just, I pulled over, my wife Kate was with me and and I just took it off my head and I never put it back on since. And I decided to, you know, just go public about my cancer diagnosis. I was able to speak directly to Def Leppard fans via social media and sort of tell them, well, this is what's going on with me. I've had this cancer diagnosis and, you know, my hair is going to fall out. So you're going to see me on tour. You know, I'm not going to have much hair. Don't be too shocked. So that sort of a help that I was able to put it out to anyone who cared or was interested before mm. actually just going on stage uh, as bald as a cue ball. And and it it did get to that stage. I mean, you know, the, my hair completely fell out, didn't even have eyebrows. But in a way, I found the whole process somewhat cathartic because I didn't have this mane of hair to hide behind. I had nothing to offer on stage but my talents as a musician, as a guitarist, as a singer, as a songwriter. And, and that's, uh, in a way, it was somewhat liberating for me. And I realized that it's probably easier for me than for a lot of other people, because at this time, I was already in my early 50s, you know. I don't think I would have handled that as well if I had gotten this cancer when I was 20 years old as opposed to 50 years old, you know, mm -hmm. so I had a different mindset about it. So it, it is a very personal thing. But but for me, I tried to look on the positive side of it. You know, I I didn't see any shame in it. You know, there's no shame in having cancer. There's no shame in, in going through treatment and wearing the effects of your treatment physically, you know, and, and even being in a very public position as I was, you know, going on tour with Def Leppard and, and playing in front of tens of thousands of people, you know, it it's like I say, there was, there was something kind of really liberating about it. You know, it's not my first choice, you know, mm. but, but you kind of go with it, you know, and, and you own it and, and you make the best of it, you know, and, and for me as a musician, like I said, there was something that, that, just allowed me to go on stage and just focus on the essence of of who I am as a musician and as a person and to just put it all out there, you know. Did you feel you got support from your fans as someone in the public eye? Yeah, like I say, with social media, it, it was possible for me to gently break the news to people. I mean, obviously the people that I spoke to on social media were my direct fans. They were Def Leppard fans. It, it's not like a global press announcement. It's not like the front page of the New York Times. You know, it, it's just a very gentle way of, oh, by the way, you know, and, and I did. I, I literally wrote it myself. I didn't have a publicist write up something for me to put out as my own words. I I spoke in my own voice you know, and said, this is what's happening with me. These are my thoughts about it. This is how I am going to deal with it. This is how I want to approach it. And yeah, it did begin this conversation with a lot of Def Leppard fans. And a lot of people said, oh my God, you know, I, I'm in the same situation. I have lymphoma or I have some other sort of cancer. You know, I've been dealing with this and I don't know how to do this or how to do that. And, I was, and so I feel alone. I feel scared. Thank you for talking about it. You know, so it, it did initiate this conversation with people. And, and for the most part, I think people were very, very grateful that somebody that they viewed as someone famous. And by the way, I should say, I don't think of myself as someone famous. I'm a guitar player in a band, but I'm no different from the people that I was 
conversing with. I mean, we all are, are flesh and blood, you know, and but I think people were coming back to me and said, thank you for going public with this. Thank you for going on stage with no hair for for normalizing cancer, you know, mm-hmm. because, again, it's a stigma thing. You think cancer, you think death sentence, you think cancer, you think stay home and and, you know, capitulate to the disease, give up on your life and your friends and your work and your social life to hell with that. I mean, that, that was never going to work for me. So, uh, you know, I think people were very responsive and, and positively so, and very grateful that, that I was willing to discuss it and normalize it, you know, go on stage with it. And have people been very supportive? People have been and continue to be extremely supportive. And actually, I find in in talking to people in the years since that so many people have actually come up to me and thanked me for doing that and saying that it really helped them in their journey and, you know, dealing with the uncomfortable physical aspects that you have to endure when you go through treatment, you know. And some chemos are more hardcore than others, obviously, you know, and some of them really have a very debilitating effect physically on people others are are more benign and more tolerable but you know in general people i thought were very very responsive and for the most part you know really grateful that that somebody in a in a public position was was willing to go out and just say hey it's part of life you know you some people get cancer and you you deal with it and your hair falls out and mm-hmm. you know and you've explained about the various periods of time when you've been undergoing treatment and some of it's obviously been pretty tough. Has it been problematic, would you say, with, with the career that you have? The most difficult part in dealing with it in the last decade has been scheduling my treatments because mm-hmm. I travel so much and it's obviously a pretty fixed schedule. And we're we're a global band. We're an international band. You know, we play all over the, the planet. I've had to, I, I mean, I remember I, I've flown from Norway to Los Angeles to do a treatment to leave the next day to fly to Canada to do a show, you know? So it's been difficult in that regard, trying Mm -hmm. to squeeze in these treatments. And obviously, you know, when you get a treatment, even the more benign treatments, they still have some sort of effect on your body, you know, fatigue, if nothing else, you know, so it has been tiring. You know, I've been very grateful, not just to my doctors, obviously, but to my bandmates, for allowing me to continue having my career with this. Unless you're actually the patient, unless you're undergoing the treatments, only you really know what you can physically and mentally tolerate. And it is different for different people. You know, I am an intensely stubborn person. I think when when I first got diagnosed with lymphoma, you know, my, my bandmates, their initial reaction was, well, you know, you can't go on tour. You should stay home. You should convalesce. You need to rest. You know, we'll get somebody in to cover for you. And and my my initial thought is whoa 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 stop no, no one's going to st- stand up there on stage and do my job for me because I know that nobody's going to do it as well as me because mm. I'm also very very proud of my work and my work ethic and and my abilities you know and at first I needed to convince my bandmates that I was physically and mentally able to do it and there were some tough times I mean there were times when you know when they would look at me and I was you know I had no hair and I was emaciated and I was weak. You know, I I know that that's compromising the overall performance of Def Leppard. So I I really am appreciative that they allowed me to do that. But in a way, you know, the bigger Def Leppard story is uh, part and parcel to that. You know, we have a drummer, Rick Allen, who has one arm. 
he's known for that. You know, Def yeah. Leppard, in fact, we're known for that. I'm in Def Leppard because the original guitar player, Steve Clark, passed away. You know, so there, there's a lot of human interest story to the story of Def Leppard, you know, that, that this is life. Stuff happens, you know, it, it's not mm -hmm. all glamour and the high life. I mean, there, this is real life. You know, we are real people and we go through these things and yet we continue to go from strength to strength. And, and not only that, but we're also there for each other and we support each other through all these things. So so in, in that way, you know, my, my cancer story does fit into the narrative of Def Leppard. But there were a couple of times, particularly in, in the summer of 2014, I was doing chemo called ICE. I was doing that in preparation to do a, an autologous stem cell transplant. There was one of the treatments about the midway point for whatever reasons, I was given the drugs in the wrong order, and I had a very, very bad allergic reaction. And the next night, we had a show <laughs> at the Los Angeles Forum. I was the walking dead. I mean, I don't know how I got through that show. I don't remember very much about it. I know we had to cut a couple of songs just to get through the show. And that was sort of the low point. But that was the worst I ever felt, obviously. Mm -hmm. And that was exceptionally difficult. You know, other than that, I got through the shows. and um, But but that was always my intention from day one when they told me that I had a cancer. Uh, I never once have felt like staying home and putting my feet up and just, you know, giving up on work and on, and on life. Way too stubborn for that. It, it actually makes me want to work even harder. And it's, it's true, like in this past decade, I actually literally have worked harder than I'd worked prior. Um, I actually have another band called Last in Line, a little side project band that I started about 11 years ago, right around the time of my diagnosis. And uh, we've got three records out. We're working on our fourth. I literally just got back from playing two weeks of shows with Last in Line. When I haven't been working with Def Leppard for the last 10 years, I've pretty much been working with Last in Line. So I have not been so busy in my entire life as I've been in this 10 years. And that makes it even more difficult to fit in the treatments. But it, it's part and parcel of, I guess, living an accelerated life, which is I, I suppose part of when you get a diagnosis, you think, okay, well, this is, you know, this isn't good, <laughs> but you can essentially choose to look at it two ways. You can capitulate to the disease and you can let it take you, you know, in its time frame, or you can just decide to go for it and live large. And I suppose the stubborn part of me elected to do that. You mentioned about being able to physically and mentally tolerate the treatment. Can you say a bit more about that? Um, I think the mental wellness uh, would come before the physical wellness. I think if you have the mental fortitude to deal with it, if you have the right attitude to deal with undergoing cancer treatment, I think the physical aspect will not take care of itself, but it, it would certainly be easier if you have the right mental approach to do it, you know. People just have a, a an intense ignorance really around cancer until you actually have to deal with it. I mean, you say the word cancer, people think death sentence, you know, and that is not the case. And certainly that is less so the case year after year after year with all these remarkable new treatments coming down the pipeline, you know, these different combination therapies, if nothing else. We don't yet have cures for cancers, but we have so, so many wonderful new options for dealing with cancer, for managing cancer. And, and you know, I, again, it comes back to the, the mental attitude. To me, it's always been about managing my cancer. 
And mm. I am in control of that. I am ahead of my cancer. I always wanted to take that approach from day one that I was going to dictate the terms, not the other way around. You know, I, I think that's really, really helped me, you know, and, and I know it's easier said than done. You know, it depends on on the cancer and the cancer diagnosis. I know people's ability to afford health care, unfortunately, you know, that's a big, big thing, certainly here in America, you know, your access to good health care, it, it's not the same for everyone. But um, again, I've I've been very, very fortunate in that regard. I just, like I said, I'm stubborn. You know, that's sort of what it comes down to, you know, and I, I never saw cancer as, as getting the better of me. And I, I still, to this day, will not let myself think that way. You know, I, I will probably go to my grave still battling it, you know, but it's not going to be the reason I die. You know, old age will take me there. Cancer is not a death sentence. Not anymore. You know, it doesn't have to be. People should not think of cancer as a stigma. It's part of life, you know, it is part of the process of life and death and living in between, you know, it's, it's one of those things you you deal with. And, and, you know, just the, the very fact that we're all alive, for any length of time is, is just a miracle in itself, you know, and, and so you, you, you deal with what it is that life gives you the good and the bad and the in between, you know, and, and cancer is just a part of that. And, you know, it, it's just part of the journey. So yeah. And, you know, it sounds like work was a, a coping mechanism as well as anything else. But to manage mm. to carry on working with a stem cell transplant, did you have to take quite a long period of time off to recoup from that? That was the only time when I had to miss some shows and the band brought in a substitute to cover for me. And I hated that <laughs> you know, for, for all the aforementioned reasons, because no one is going to do my job better than me. So I, I suppose, you know, that give me the the mental fortitude to get out there sooner to, I, I can't remember. I mean, it, it was a pretty quiet part on the band's calendar. So these half dozen or so shows that I missed were not high profile shows and there wasn't anything else immediately following them. So I think I had enough time. Um, that was in the autumn of 2014. Obviously, during the time of, this, of the, the transplant, I was in the hospital for several weeks and, you know, I couldn't have visitors. And as soon as I got home from that situation, I don't really remember being too cautious. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit carefree in my attitude towards the thing. You know, there's a, another resurgence of COVID going around. But, you know, like I said, I literally just got home from two weeks of doing shows with Last in Line. And, you know, we do meet and greets. We meet people, a couple dozen people every day, and you're shaking hands and putting your arm around people and taking photographs, you know, and nobody's wearing a mask. And it, it has occurred to me, like, obviously, you know, maybe I should be being a little bit more cautious with this. But, you know, life is full of calculated risk. And whether you have cancer or not, life is full mm -hmm. of calculated you cross the street to go to Starbucks, you could get killed by a bus. Was it worth it for a cup of coffee? Only you can determine that, you know, <laughs> you got to live life and you got to live at your pace and in a way that you're comfortable with. Beyond your work environment, do you feel that lymphoma has changed your perspective on life at all? A little bit. I mean, I, I would like to think that I always had a positivity in my outlook towards life. Um, I would certainly think that that's been amplified and heightened since my diagnosis. Yeah. But, you know, my glass has always been half full, you know, my entire life. Going back to your original diagnosis of lymphoma, is there something
something you'd heard of before you got your own diagnosis? Was it something you were familiar with? Not really. I mean, very casually. Yeah. I don't think anyone really understands cancer until you have it. You know, there's, there's a very cursory, basic knowledge of it. You know, again, going back to my bandmates and their initial reaction and like, oh, you should stay home. You need to convalesce. You know, that's part of it. You have to educate the people in your life. People don't really have an understanding of what it is or what it entails, unless, like I said, you're a patient or a, or a cancer nurse or an oncologist mm -hmm. or whatever. For everyone else, there's a lot of misconception around what it is. And obviously there's different cancers and there's different levels of different cancer. I mean, you know, having stage 2B Hodgkin's lymphoma is very different from having stage 4 lung cancer. You know, I, I've learned that that Hodgkin's is a very, if not curable, certainly a very treatable mm -hmm. disease. You know, I mean, it is possible to to live a, a healthy and robust life and and have lymphoma. You know, and and that's certainly what I believe. I could be mm -hmm. totally wrong. You know, there could be medical professionals listening to this saying no, 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 no. But you know, that's that's sort of my interpretation of it. That's certainly been my experience of it in the last ten years. I mean. Honestly, the hardest part has been the scheduling. Uh, next Monday, I go in for cycle four of the Brentuximab and Nivolumab combination. Mm -hmm. My next travel is to Japan and Australia with Def Leppard in late October, early November. In fact, the day after I come back from Australia, I do my final cycle of, of that combination. And that's the only one where I'm off schedule. I'm going to be off schedule by about three or four days because of that trip. Um, but my oncologist is fine with that. Every other treatment I've had is, has been right on schedule. And, uh, you know, hopefully that will put me into remission. I do a scan next week as well before cycle four. So we'll have a fair idea of how it's going. You know, it's not going to cure me. You know, I'm not under any illusions with that, but it might hopefully put me into remission for a little while. And, you know, there are new things coming along. I mean, CAR-T has been something that's been very interesting to me for the last recent years. And, you know, my oncologist is telling me about something called CD30. You know, there's trials opening for that soon. And, you know, so there are always options and there's different combination therapies like the one I'm on and the one I just did prior to that. You know, mm -hmm. there's always different ways to treat it. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I did catch it early enough to where this is all manageable. I, I've always felt like my doctors and I, we are ahead of the cancer. We are managing it. And I, I think as long as I'm in that position, it's going to be okay. There's always going to be some option of a treatment that's going to keep things under control. And you've spoken a lot about your hair loss. Other side effects that a lot of people struggle with is fatigue. And you've touched on that. You know, what, what would be your tip on managing fatigue? How did you kind of get through that, do you think? Well, I, I've always been pretty physical and always been reasonably fit. When I got my diagnosis, I was working out pretty regularly with a trainer, you know, doing weight training several times a week. That helped, you know, I physically strong. And like I say, I was always mentally strong. I was always stubborn. They tell me I got cancer. I say, okay, fine. I'm going to, I'm going to beat cancer, you know, and if I can't beat it, I'm going to learn how to live with it. You know, it's, it is what it is. Like I say, you know, life is, is calculated risks. Life is about balance. I'm a guy who enjoys a beer or a glass of wine. There were times when I was doing hardcore chemo when I didn't feel like it because I was feeling nauseous. There's other times when I've done chemo treatments, I've come home and I've had a beer and a grilled cheese sandwich and a side of French fries, you know, <laughs> so it's not, 
I, I don't go to the extreme of finding some bizarre diet to live on or, or living some Zen monk like existence, mm -hmm. you know, life to me is about balance and it's about enjoyment and you do what you need to do to feel good and to feel like you're taking care of yourself physically and mentally. And I continue to work out um, with a trainer pretty much every day now. That's always naturally been part of my life anyway. I, I don't want to give the wrong impression that I'm a 100% gym bunny and my body is a temple sort of thing. That's absolutely not true. I will get up at 6 a.m. and go to the gym every morning, but I will finish my evening with a, a beer or a glass of wine, you know, so... Again, it's life. It's about balance, you know, and and sometimes when I do my chemo treatments, I, I don't end my evening with a glass of wine. I, you just take each day as it comes, you know. And it sounds like the future's holding lots more of Def Leppard, which is fantastic to hear. It is actually. Yeah. You know, we've been fortunate. We, we are a bunch of old guys now, you know, for the last 15 or 18 years or so, our audience has grown and grown and has become multi-generational. I mean, there are so, so many people mm -hmm. in our audience now all around the world who are young enough to be our children. And that in itself is rejuvenating. When you go on stage and you get this energy from this audience because they're so much younger, and that's always been something that we've thrived upon as a band. We we feed off of that, the energy of the audience, because we're playing songs that... that have been around for 40 plus years for the most part. So, you know, we know the songs, we've played them thousands of times, but when you step on stage and the audience is excited and, and you feel that excitement, you we're like vampires. We feed off of that and that we cycle it and we give it back. And, and you know, it's very, very good to be Def Leppard right now. And, and we don't take it for granted. And I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for my bandmates too. I mean, we are so aware of this and we're so cognizant of this and we're so grateful for this and we just can't believe how lucky we are to actually still be able to do this and and that our career is growing even after you know five decades or so of doing it yeah it's a joy and it's a joy for us as well i have a couple of other bonus questions that we do ask all our guests that i'd like to put to you and the first one is actually what brings you joy well my work Obviously, first and foremost, like ever since I saw Mark Boland on Top of the Pops, that was it. That's all I ever wanted to do. So I do experience great joy in my work. And and again, like when I got my diagnosis, that's why it was absolutely vital to me that I continue to work because that is my source of, of life. Not the only source, obviously, but th but that's it speaks to the core of who I am. I am a musician. The hard part for me was reconciling the performer part of my job with having no hair, you know, but like I say, that that brought its own rewards. Like it was cathartic in its own way to work around that. So that that brings me great happiness, you know, and and like I say, I, I was born with my glass half full. So I, I find happiness in a lot of things. The next question is what one thing has helped you with your lymphoma and living with lymphoma? What one thing, gosh, well, one one person, my wife, Kate, you know, she's had to put up with a lot. Just really mm -hmm. grateful that she's uh, been a rock for that. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on lymphoma. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website 
at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action. Inform. Support. Connect.